Well, good morning again. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, it actually felt relatively warm outside today. I'm not sure that uh, I'm used to that quite yet. Uh, the rain uh, did quite a job on our, um, our work day yesterday. We uh, decided to postpone that. Uh, it's kind of hard to stain a uh, large piece of playground equipment when, you know, the thunder is rolling and the rain's coming down. So we didn't think it would stick, so we decided that we would postpone it till June 2nd. But it's good to see everybody. Uh, this week, and I'll mention this in just a few minutes, um, but this week I had the opportunity, uh, I was at a conference with uh, some pastors and some other church leaders, and I was asked to lead a couple sessions there, and so I was teaching a couple things during the course of the week. And uh, one of the things I was talking about is the idea of the culture that is created in the context of the local church. And so one of the things that I was pointing out to those that were in attendance was the concept of the culture that was present in the early church. And so I want to continue that thought today by talking about that. And I want to start off by showing you a quote uh, before we even look at our scripture. I came across this recently, and it says this. Uh, this is by Leonard Ravenhill. He says, The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. What he was trying to do is draw a contrast between the things that the early church endured and the type of things that sometimes today the church prioritizes that really can be off the mark. And so this morning we're going to be looking at this idea of recapturing the heart and the mindset of the early church. And we're going to be looking at two primary portions of Scripture. You can see it here on the screen. The first we're going to look at is from Acts chapter 4, and then after that we're going to jump to 1 John chapter 3. And what I'm going to do right now, and the page numbers are, are listed there for you if it would make it easier for you, uh, but I'm going to read both sections to start us off, then I'm going to have a word of prayer for us, and uh, then I want to just help us to discuss and just kind of think about what it would look like in our context to truly recapture and cultivate the mindset and the heart of the early church. So this is what it says Starting with Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're, we're told this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as, had, as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I'm jumping now to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, and in 1 John 3, verse 11, it says this, and again, it's speaking to this idea of the heart and the mindset that the leaders of the early church were trying to cultivate during that era, and it says in verse 11 of 1 John 3, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together today and to be able to study it together and to meditate on it together. And Lord, we recognize that throughout the course of each day and throughout the course of each week, we're all presented with various challenges and, and uh, various things that come our way that obviously um, are, are things that, um, that we're concerned with, things that weigh on our minds, things that weigh on our hearts. And uh, Lord, we pray that by your grace that we would put those things aside and that we would be able to take a look at this portion of your word and meditate on uh, just the culture that you were cultivating among the brothers and sisters who were part of the early church. We pray that this would be something that we would recapture as well. And so we thank you, Lord, for these things. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. But one of the joys uh, of following Christ, one of the joys of being a follower of his, is that he grants you, likewise, the privilege to be part of his family, the church. Now, Scripture reveals to us that in Christ, all believers are united to him as the head of the church, and we're likewise united to one another as the body. We were created by the Lord to operate in community. Uh, We've been given the privilege to actually be a beneficial and sacrificial part of one another's lives, but living in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ is not always an easy thing to do. You know, that's one of those things that the longer you try to do it, maybe the better you get at it, but you also start to realize that it's not automatically an easy thing to do to live in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ, because sometimes our preferences or maybe even just our selfish tendencies can get in the way, Uh, sometimes as the result of an offense It can be very easy to pull away and to create some distance uh, while you brood over something that's made you upset. And I don't know if you've dealt with that in recent days, but that's obviously something that we could all probably identify with. I can certainly think to to certain seasons of my life where if I was brooding over something, if I was upset about something, a lot of times I don't lash out. Usually I find myself just kind of pulling away and maybe just kind of creating distance, and that competes with the ability to live in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. I think other times it can be very easy to lose sight of the things that are important in this world, and then we start investing our time and our energy elsewhere instead of investing our time and our energy in Christ's people, and likewise allowing them to make investments in us. But thankfully, when you look through the Scriptures, we could see multiple examples from the Scriptures that show us a glimpse of the heart and the mindset and the attitude of Christ, and likewise the attitude that He wants us to foster one to another, among each other. And as we look at these examples, and the Scriptures that we're looking at today provide great examples of what this looks like, 
but we can learn more about what it looks like to recapture the heart and the mindset of the early church. And one of the things that we're encouraged to do when we look at these portions of Scripture is this. It's the idea of letting unity foster our generosity. Look again at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and then I want to jump to verse 34. It says this in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And then when you jump to verse 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Let's pause there for just a second. Uh, As I I mentioned this just a few moments ago, each year, right after Mother's Day, I attend a, a, a conference for pastors and other church leaders um, it's, it's not really even something elective. It's something that I'm expected to go to. And so I go to it. In some years, it's really enjoyable. In other years, it feels like uh, something that I'm, I'm just doing out of a sense of obligation. Thankfully, this year, it felt like something that was more enjoyable. But during the time that I'm away, obviously, I miss my family. And I was happy to know that they actually missed me. And they confirmed that when I returned home. And this was one of the confirmations Uh, that really sealed it for me. I don't know what you like to snack on, all right? Some people here probably, well, let's just take an informal poll, all right? Who here has a sweet tooth? All right, who here has a savory tooth or a salt tooth? All right, you're my people, all right? (laughs) The people that are salty in personality and in in taste buds, right? We're, We're together on this. My family knows that I have a bit of a salt tooth, and uh, I don't know if that's a real phrase, all right, but I'm going to make it one today, all right? And uh, this is what confirmed to me that they actually missed me when I came home. I uh, was home just for a very short time, and almost as instantly as I was home, they had to go somewhere, and I was like, oh man, we only saw each other for a few minutes, and my son walked up to me, and he said, you know what, I bought these for me, but I thought I'd share them with you. Do you want these? And the answer was obviously yes, and the these was he actually had bought uh, he purchased a uh, a bag of the spicy sweet chili Doritos, and I was I, they're good, aren't they? Aren't they the best? I remember when they came out a few years ago. I was like, come on, like is this going to be good? But I was intrigued, and I tried them. And I was like, no, it's like really good, right? And so it kind of is a mixture of both worlds. It's got the sweet for the sweet tooth, the savory, you know, for the the salt tooth. And he shared it with me and allowed me to eat. I was like, I get to eat the whole thing. He's like, you get to eat the whole thing. I felt missed but I was blessed by his generosity. And when you look at the example that the early church provides, when we take a look at what this portion says and how it describes what was taking place here, when we look at the example of the the early church, we see a high degree of generosity among the believers. These, keep in mind the context that they lived in, by the way. These believers were living in many respects like outcasts in their society. They weren't highly embraced by everyone that they experienced. There was a high degree of pressure on them to reject Christ. There was a high degree of pressure on them to, to embrace societal, societal norms that were really the opposite of what Christ was teaching His people to embrace. And so the early believers did not embrace these societal norms. They chose to live differently in reference to Christ. You know, they decided to grow closer because Christ inspired unity among them. 
The Lord was fostering this genuine sense of unity among them. And as they kind of embraced that sense of unity or or went in that direction with their lives, they also joyfully expressed generosity one toward another. That's what the Scripture reveals to us. Now, consider some of the results of this generosity as the early church was united. We're told that within the church, now just imagine this, we're told that within the church there were no needy people anymore. Meaning at one point there were needy people among the church, but as, you know, as people partnered together, as they became part of the body of Christ, as they lived this life together in unity, there were no more needy people among them because in response to the generosity that Christ had shown His people, you have the people of God, you have the church of Jesus Christ, they begin treating everything that they owned as things that ultimately belong to Christ anyway. So when needs were present among their brothers and sisters in Christ, they went out of their way to meet those needs. And some went even as far, it tells us here, as liquidating their real estate. So selling homes or selling land or things of you know, legitimate value, but they'd, li- they'd liquidate this real estate that they owned in order to bless people who are their brothers and sisters in Christ with the proceeds from liquidating it. That's a beautiful reality to consider. You know, when you think about what life was like on the outside for the early church, they had a lot of difficulties. But when they were together with their brothers and sisters in Christ, it was communicated to them that they were genuinely loved, they were genuinely valued, they were genuinely invested in. And some people, when they look at this portion of Scripture, and I've heard this said multiple times, so I want to throw this out there. Some people say as they look at the the believers meeting each other's needs and helping each other uh, with all, you know, just different life needs, Some people have said, oh, that's like a picture of communism or socialism. This is actually the opposite of communism or socialism because this wasn't state-mandated activity. You know, in those political systems, you have state-mandated this or that. In this context, this wasn't state-mandated. It was the fruit of genuinely changed hearts. And by the way, if you take a look at the most generous political systems where the most people are helped that have needs, I'll give you a hint. It's not socialism or communism. More people are helped through the system that the Lord's blessed us to live under. So I'm quite grateful for it. And here in this context, you have the early church as the fruit of people who had changed hearts. They were meeting one another's needs, not because a government or someone was making them do it. They did it because they loved Jesus. They were grateful for what Christ had done for them and they decided to return the favor, to show that love, to show that generosity to others. Because when a person gains a deeper understanding of who Christ is, and a deeper understanding of what Christ has done on our behalf, this becomes the outpouring of a life that recognizes Jesus as Lord. This is the manner in which a true family learns to take care of one another. Their unity fostered Christ-centered generosity. That's one of the things that we see that was part of the culture of the early church. Their unity was fostering generosity. Something else that we see in this portion of Scripture is this. They testified to the power of Christ's resurrection. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. The way it phrases it is, is like this. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now let's pause there. Uh, many of you know, um, particularly if you had the opportunity to watch uh, NBC 10 uh, two weeks ago, 
uh, that over the past few weeks in relation to that incident that took place uh, uh, at our sister church down in West Conchahawken related to that man yelling in the building and, and uh, the intimidating things that he was trying to do down there, that over the past few weeks I've had conversations, multiple conversations, with law enforcement. Uh, it's been fascinating to uh, just watch them do their thing. It's been fascinating to realize that uh, Homeland Security has multiple times called me, twice they've called me. So, you know, you never think you're going to experience or deal with something like that. And twice Homeland Security's called me since those events took place. And what they wanted from me was my testimony. What they wanted from me was my testimony as to what I saw took place and my ability to identify the person who had committed those crimes because what they're doing is they're working to bring these things through the judicial process. And one of the most powerful things that can help them in their task to bring these these things through the judicial process is testimony, particularly eyewitness testimony. It carries a lot of weight in the context of the legal process. Accurate testimony can also be a very powerful thing in relation to spiritual matters as well. And when you take a look at this portion of Scripture, it it tells us that that during the early days of the church, so during the period of time that's being described here in the book of Acts, one of the key ways that the Lord was utilizing and using the leaders that He had raised up was to use them to testify to the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because you had the apostles and you you actually had hundreds of others as well, who were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. There were hundreds of people who saw Jesus in his resurrected state during the 40-day period after his, his resurrection from the grave. And as they testified to the historical fact of Christ's resurrection, I'm sure that they also added um, some additional Holy Spirit-inspired insights to those conversations to help people understand why the resurrection actually mattered. I believe that they testified, and I know for a fact that they testified to this because the Scriptures reveal that they do when you look through the New Testament, but they testified to the significance of the resurrection for all who believe, not just the fact that it historically happened, but they also help people understand why it mattered. And here in this portion of Scripture, they're testifying to the resurrection of Christ, it tells us. So when we look at this and we think of these folks testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want us to ask a question of ourselves in relation to that, why that testimony would actually matter. And that's this, do we realize what Christ actually accomplished for us when he rose from the grave and why that's significant? When you look through the Apostle Paul's writings, he makes it abundantly clear in the book of 1 Corinthians that if Christ did not rise from the grave, we have a vain faith meaning it's useless. It means nothing. If Christ did not rise from the grave, right now, presently, I'm wasting my time and you're wasting your time. If Christ didn't rise from the grave, there is absolutely no point in believing in him. If Christ is still dead, that means that he's not God. That means he's not our resurrected Savior. That means he did not defeat sin, Satan, and death. But because Christ did rise from the dead, what was he doing? He was proving to that generation that he was who he says he is. That he was God in the flesh. People don't just rise up from the grave on their own. 
And here you have Christ rising from death. Now, during the course of, the, of His earthly ministry, He healed those who had died and resurrected them, in a sense. But when you look, you know, they were resurrected in the same body, that, uh, that, you know, or, or that they, they were brought back to life in the same body, the one that is subject to death. But when Christ rose from the grave, did folks initially recognize Him? He looked different. There's a different resurrection there. The Bible describes it, describes Christ particularly as the first fruits of a resurrection that all those who believe in him are likewise going to experience. So the fact that Christ rose from the grave proves that he's God. It also signifies the fact that he defeated death. Death couldn't defeat him. If he's rising from the grave, he defeated death. And why does death come about? Well, death comes about as the result of sin. And when Christ rose from the grave, he defeated sin. Christ, when he rose from the grave, defeated Satan. And he shares that victory with every single person who will trust in him. And he assures us that a day is coming when we likewise will experience, through faith in him, a resurrection. And Scripture tells us that we're going to be given a brand new body that is not subject to pain, it is not subject to the aging process, it's not subject to disease, it's not subject to to death. Wouldn't it be nice to have that body? I mean, if you trust in Christ, you're going to have that body. That's what Scripture tells us. In, in, you know, as we think about our future in heaven, as you know, the Lord unites heaven and earth, and the eternal state goes on, you're not going to just be floating around there as uh, like this bodiless spirit. The Lord tells us we're going to be given a brand new body, but it's not corruptible. It's not able to be killed. It's not able to be subject to disease. I've noticed, and someone told me this, and this is absolutely true. Anyone here 24, age 24? All right, you're 24. Anyone else 24? All right, enjoy this year. All right, two of you are. Perfect. Enjoy this year because every injury you incur after 25, you feel forever. It just, ne- like, you always feel it. Like, I remember, you know, in my mid-20s, I went skiing, and I, I crashed on this side of my body, and I hurt my shoulder, and I hurt my hip. It's been... I don't know, 16 years since I did it, I can feel it right now. You know, three times I've sprained this ankle, twice since I'm 25, I feel it right now. And when you, right now, like you're analyzing like the aches and pains in your body, you're like, oh yeah, wait a second, that's, I remember I was helping my cousin move, yeah, I did that. And uh, you know, when I look at my hands, I see, uh, like I remember when I messed this up and I messed this up, messed this up. I've got a lot of good stories that go with these scars, by the way. I'll, tell, I'll save those for another sermon. But the point being, the body that we have right now, what, you know, what, what's the deal with it? It's subject to decay. It's subject to pain. It's subject to injury. And Scripture tells us that there's going to come a day when our resurrected body will be given to us in the presence of Christ, and it's not subject to these things. And sometimes, particularly if this body's feeling ill or worn out or tired or fatigued, fatigued or injured or any of those things, I find myself... Uh, saying like, you know, it'd be nice to have that new one now. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad it's coming. Uh, today, it'd be an okay day for it, right? It's kind of like what the Apostle Paul talks about when you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 2. He says, for in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, right? We groan, we long to put on that heavenly dwelling. Well, that day's coming, And you know how that day's coming, or you know what secured it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's the first fruits of that resurrection. 
And he promises us that as we trust in him, sin, Satan, and death are defeated. And we now share his victory, and we're promised that we will live in his presence for all eternity with a brand new, incorruptible body. That that's his gift to us. How openly do we rejoice in this truth? You know, do our words and our lives regularly testify to the power and the effect of Christ's resurrection? And I bring that up because when you look at what the apostles were doing, they were openly testifying to the power of the resurrection of Christ. They weren't just testifying about the event, although that was part of it. They were testifying to the effect of what Christ had accomplished. And that's something that you and I can do well uh, or would do well to meditate on day by day because it holds great significance for us. And if Christ did not resurrect from the dead, if He didn't rise from death, our faith, is it had, there's nothing to it. That was the moment, that's the pinnacle, that's the moment where Christ showed us who He is and what He actually came to accomplish. And so you have the apostles and others testifying to the resurrection of Christ with power. That was part of the early church, their culture. They would testify to that. And I think sometimes we don't even think about it. And you look at what they were talking about, like what was on the, the, the tip of their tongue. They were testifying to the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus lives, that He's alive, that death did not defeat Him, but He defeated death. And if we're in Christ by faith, death likewise will not defeat us. Christ has secured the victory for us. He shares it with us generously. The early church celebrated that. We can celebrate that as well. In fact, the reason we're gathered here on Sunday is why. Now, we can gather together any day of the week we want. Some believers throughout the world can't gather together for various reasons on Sunday. But typically, why do believers gather together on Sunday? Why are we here right now? Because the early church, in commemoration of Christ's resurrection, what did they do? They started getting together on the day He rose from the grave. Because typically this was, what was not the day they were used to gathering. But after His resurrection, they were like, you know what, like, let every time we get together like this be a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And that's what we're doing, even in the selection of the day in which we've, we've chosen to gather. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Something else that the early church was known for, they were known for intentional encouragement. That was another part of the culture of the early church. Look at verse 36 and verse 37 of Acts chapter 4. It says this, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know, um, you know, there's certain names from the Bible that I get it that we, we don't use too much now. Uh, Barnabas, I don't know if it just seems like, like funny to use it, but uh, Barnabas is a name that, you know, maybe it'd be all right if it makes a resurgence, wouldn't you think? It's a pretty cool name when you look at what's behind that name. It's actually a nickname that was given to him, and we'll get that in a second. But he was called the Son of Encouragement. His birth name was Joseph. The apostles started calling him, he's like the encouraging guy, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, right? The other day I received a call from a friend, and several years ago he volunteered to lead an organization, it's a Christian organization, a ministry organization, and it has not been an easy task for him to do it. He's been leading this thing for several years now, 
And I, I sense that in some respects it's really starting to beat him down. And so he and I were talking on the phone just the other day, and it was interesting because um, just I think it was just the day before I had come across a note that he sent to me in 2014. And I don't remember what prompted him to send me the note. I don't know if I said to him that I was dealing with something that was weighing me down. I'm, I'm not exactly certain what prompted it. But he sent me a very nice note. It was a word of encouragement. It also included a, a, a quote from a pastor in Africa that he knows. And so he included that quote, and it was an encouraging quote. And I had read it the other day, and I was like, oh, wow, that was cool. It was nice to come across this again four years later, and then I get a call from him, and I'm talking to him, and in the midst of talking to him, I realized he's feeling like I was probably feeling four years ago right now in this moment. He's feeling a little bit worn out. He's just feeling tired, and he's feeling a little bit beat up because of a few things, and I thought to myself, I got to find that note again so I can resend it to him. You know, he sent it to me four years ago when he noticed that I was feeling a little tired, and I thought, well, now wait a second, maybe it's God's, in God's sovereignty, in God's providence, he allowed my eyes to find that. I hadn't read that note in four years. I found it the day before, and I was like, I've got to send it to him. So on Friday, I took some time. I had to refind it, and I sent it to him. And I, I'm paraphrasing because this isn't exactly how he said it, but it was close. But it was like he, he replied back to me, and he said, that is exactly what I needed right now. And it was kind of funny and kind of ironic to encourage him with his own words that he had sent to me four years ago, but it made me feel good to be the giver of encouragement because it certainly felt good four years ago to be the receiver of encouragement from him. As he took time to invest in me, I was blessed. And now I had the privilege to just take a moment while my tank is feeling full to encourage him while his tank is feeling a little bit low. Now imagine being a Christian during the era of the early church. That culture did not share their values. Uh, Christians were often arrested. They were often killed simply for trusting in Christ and being vocal about the message of Christ's gospel. And in the midst of that context, the Scripture tells us that the Lord raised up people with a gift for encouraging others. And again, as it tells us here, one such man was this man named Joseph. Uh, again, the apostles called him Barnabas. Uh, it's funny how many of the names that we know from Scripture are actually nicknames that were given to the people, in, including Peter, who, you know, Christ called Peter, but his name was actually Simon. Peter was a nickname, you know, signifying the fact of the rock of, of Peter's testimony that, that Christ was, um, that ultimately that he was God in the flesh to be worshipped. But here you have a man named Joseph, and the disciples or the apostles over time, they start calling him Barnabas. They start referring to this man as the son of encouragement. And, um, you know, Barnabas was so well known as an encourager during that era that that just became the primary title or the primary way people addressed him. Now, what do you suppose the Lord would want us to take from the example of a life like Barnabas's life? You know, as we're looking at this culture and the things that Acts chapter 4 and then in a moment 1 John 3 describes about the culture of the early church, what should we learn from Barnabas in particular? Now, it's clear when you look throughout the book of Acts that Barnabas was passionate about helping others come to know Christ in a very personal and meaningful way. 
He would travel to do so. He partnered with the apostles and other ministry leaders to do so. He also encouraged his family to do so as well. In fact, the Gospel of Mark was written by Barnabas' cousin. It was the first gospel to be written down. It was written down by a man named Mark. The book of Acts tells us that Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And Mark, at one point, was really discouraged in ministry, and Barnabas wouldn't give up on him, even though other people, including the Apostle Paul, wanted to give up on Mark. And Barnabas wouldn't give up on him. And he was an encourager. And he would take the time to, to look at people when they were down, and for the glory of Christ, he would actively lift them up. He would notice when people were discouraged, and he would try to give them Christ-centered, gospel-infused encouragement as often as he could. And what do you suppose life would be like and what it would look like among us as believers living in this era if we likewise became known as intentional encouragers? If this was something we took the time to do, if this was something we took the time to notice, like was being done during the era of the early church. Let me ask this in a personal way, and I hope the Lord brings somebody to your mind, because as I was preparing this this week, the Lord brought somebody to my mind as I was thinking about this concept. But is there somebody that the Lord wants to specifically encourage through your words, through the things that He inspires you to say, but as of yet you've been holding those words in? You know, you've been thinking these encouraging things in your mind, but you haven't taken the time to actually verbalize them and speak them to this particular person. So how might the Lord be seeking to bless someone else or prod them on in a healthy direction through the encouragement that He lavishly blesses them with through you? Is there somebody that the Lord brings to your mind? And if He's bringing somebody to your mind, Will you carve out a moment during the course of the next seven days to be intentional about encouraging them? And the reason I'm using the word intentional is because I think a lot of times we wait for circumstances to just develop. I think a lot of times in life we just wait for circumstances to be completely handed to us with a sign from heaven that now is the perfect moment. And a lot of times what ends up happening is they just remain theories in our minds when we never couple them with a plan. So how could you intentionally encourage the person that the Lord brought to your mind? There are people that intentionally encourage us that we should likewise take the time to intentionally encourage. And I think that Barnabas looked at that and said, this is a vital ministry that the Lord's given to me. And when you look at what life was like for the early church, particularly these apostles who, all, you know, all of them except for one were martyred, during the course of that time, what did, who did the Lord supply them with? Barnabas. And what was Barnabas doing? He was being used of the Lord to perk up their spirits, to point out to them things that they may not have noticed, and encourage them as best as he could by pointing them to Christ over and over and over again. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons the apostles were so effective in their ministry is because the Lord surrounded them with people like Barnabas. Think about job contexts that you've had the opportunity to work in. If you've worked for an encouraging boss or with an encouraging team, haven't you felt more productive? Hasn't it been more of a joy to serve in that context? These were people who were actively risking their lives to let people know about Jesus Christ. And the Lord knows what we as people need. And so in this context, He supplied Barnabas and others like Him who were intentional about encouraging them. 
pointing them to Christ, lifting them up in their lowest seasons. As the church, that's something we want to adopt into our culture, just like the early church did. Now, there was one other portion of Scripture that I want to point out to us today, and we read it just a few moments ago, and it was from 1 John chapter 3. And in the book of 1 John, just like you see in John's other books, you have John trying as a leader to directly point some of these things out to the people. And one of the things that he was trying to encourage them to understand is the concept of love, but specifically sacrificial love. And so as we talk about you know, this idea of the culture of the church or the mindset or the attitude or the lifestyle that the early church should display, I wanted to point out a couple of these things as well as we finish up. And one of the things that we see that John was encouraging the church to do was to show the church family, one to another, sacrificial love. Look at what it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The major reason that the hearts and the minds of the early church were cultivating a culture of love within the body of Christ was because Christ had changed their hearts and Christ had given them new minds. So it was an internal thing that Christ had accomplished, giving them new hearts and giving them new minds. And so they were cultivating a culture of sacrificial love. But in addition to that, it's also clear that the apostles and the early church leaders were going out of their way to emphasize the fact that this was the way that believers were to treat one another. As Christ has shown us the ultimate example of his sacrificial love through his death on the cross... Basically, you have the Apostle John and others that were encouraging believers to follow Christ's example by showing sacrificial love to one another. And again, the Apostle John was particularly known for encouraging this. The Apostle John was used by the Lord to write down five books of the Bible. You have the Gospel of John, you have the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and you have the book of Revelation. And if you go throughout all five of those books, one of the things that you'll notice as a pattern or a repeated area of emphasis, is the idea of the church showing love to one another. Now, I don't know what the shortest sermon you've ever heard preach was. Maybe right now you're saying, I wish this was the shortest sermon I ever heard preach. And that's possible. But I'm told um, that toward the end of the Apostle John's life, this isn't recorded in Scripture, but apparently there's some historical evidence to this fact, that the church liked to bring the Apostle John in before them just to say a word. He was in his 90s, his health wasn't good, he couldn't really stand up and speak before a group, but they'd bring him in sometimes on a mat, they'd all get really quiet, and they would listen to what he had to say, and typically my understanding is that the message that the Apostle John would speak to the church was this, he would simply say in a whispered tone, love one another, and he's like, love one another, you know, they'd listen for him to say it, they probably already knew he was going to say it, but they also probably realized we might not have a lot of time to hear him remind us of this once again. But the truth is, that's something we need to be reminded of a lot. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. 
The Apostle John was trying to emphasize that as the Holy Spirit gave him the words to write down, and he was encouraging the early church to create, as they're talking about like this culture that's being created among them, he's saying as believers in Jesus Christ, we need, you know, as people who have received the sacrificial love of Christ, to bestow that on one another. As part of the culture of the church, we should be sacrificial in our love toward one another. In fact, in verse 14 of 1 John 3, John states here that displaying sacrificial love to one another is actually evidence that we have passed from death to life. And what he's saying here is that if you're looking for some sort of visible or tangible proof that you have actually experienced the blessing of salvation... Showing sacrificial love to your Christian family is actually tangible proof that Christ has indeed saved you. It's one of the most notable pieces of evidence that Christ has saved you. Your desire and your action to show sacrificial love out of gratefulness for the sacrificial love that Christ has given to you, that you want to show that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the fruit of a changed heart. It's the fruit of gaining a genuine appreciation for who Christ is and what He's done. And here in this portion of Scripture, John tells us one more thing. As we finish up, I just want to point this out. That when we love, it should be in deed and truth. What does he mean by that? Look at what he says in verse 16 down to verse 18. It says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. He's speaking of Christ here. That He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So again, one last thing I just want to point out to us here as we look at 1 John 3 are the words that the Apostle John spoke as the Holy Spirit inspired him to do so. And you have here in this passage, as John's doing what he can to cultivate a a culture of love among the early church, he stresses that love needs to be more than just words. Love needs to be more than just words. We can tell others that we love them all that we want. And we can let those words merely hang in the air. Or we can follow through with our deeds and show it to be real. Even in Barnabas's case, I mean, he certainly encouraged others with his words, didn't he? And then he also liquidated all of his real estate to meet their needs. You know, it's not like he was just saying things and let it hanging out, you know, and let it hang in the air. He saw people in desperate, desperate conditions, and he met the need as best as he could. But we need to love indeed. We need to love in truth. Jesus told us that he loved us, right? But what convinced us that he loved us? Well, we're convinced that he meant it because he laid down his life for us. This week when I came back from that conference that I went to, I came back bringing something for my wife. It it was a gift to her. It wasn't from me, but uh, I guess I could play, take some credit for it and that I drove it to her, right? But really, I deserve no credit for it at all. Uh, But it was a nice gift. It was something that she was looking forward to. In fact, it was a beautiful leather bag. And uh, it looks fantastic. I mean, if you looked at this thing, uh, you would probably think it was rather expensive to buy. Um, But again, it was given to my wife for free. It looks like it's from a boutique. Uh, But the truth is, it was actually handmade in prison from reclaimed materials. 
And there's a story behind the bag that's, that's worth telling that illustrates this very point. I have a friend who, uh, he does upholstery, he, he reupholsters furniture, and he also makes other things from reclaimed materials. And several years ago, the Lord convicted his heart that he needed to figure out a way to show the love of Christ to those who are incarcerated. He was trying to figure out, how do I go about doing this? And the more he thought, the more the Lord gave him the idea, what if you ask to volunteer in the prison context to teach prisoners how to reupholster furniture and make different household items out of reclaimed materials so that when these men are finished with their incarceration, they actually leave the prison and know how to support themselves, they, they, that they learn a trade and then can leave prison knowing how to do something. And he thought, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. And so he asked the prison in his area for permission to do that, and, uh, and they gave him permission. He went through the clearances, set up the program, they got the materials and did all that, and so they take reclaimed materials, and once a week he goes and he serves with the prisoners, and they begin the process of reupholstering furniture, making bags, doing other things. Someone told me that making guitar straps would be a great thing for them to do. So I'm going to make that recommendation to them that someone said, no, guitar straps made out of reclaimed material, or it's awesome. I was like, I'm going to pass that word on to them. But he started doing that, and, when, and these prisoners have noticed that. And so they've started asking him, you know, Pastor Dave, like, why do, why do you do this? Like, this, you don't make money from doing this. Why do you do this? And he's had the opportunity on many occasions to say, because Christ has shown me his love, I have the opportunity to show the love of Christ to others. And this is a way that I can help you for his glory, and maybe you'll then help somebody else. And so he's been doing that, and it's been a powerful testimony uh, over the past few years that he's been doing this, and now we have a, a nice bag that was made there in the prison, and he was excited to give that. I called him up the other, other day, and I said, because I found out that he's also started uh, distributing gifts at Christmas time to families in the Philadelphia area, specifically children in the Philadelphia area who have at least one parent that is in prison. And he's been trying to figure out a way to expand that. He was able to give away uh, gifts to 600 people last year as a couple churches partnered with him. And so I said to him, I was like, our church will partner with you. I said, just, I said, just give us the info now so that it's early and we have time to, to plan. And I said, well, you know, we'll even help distribute some of these things. We're close to Philly. We'll help you pass them out. He goes to different community centers and passes them out to the kids. I said, we'll help. And so I'll fill you in on more info with that. But I looked at that and I thought to myself, you know, here's somebody taking the time to not just love in word, but to love in deed and truth. And I thought, wow, what a powerful example, because ultimately as Christ's family, what has Christ called us to do? We're called to love one another in deed and truth, and to likewise take the overflow of that love and to share it with everyone that Christ brings along our path. So when you think about the culture of the early church, when you think about this idea of recapturing the mindset or the heart of the early church, there are many things right now in this world that try and gain your attention, and they try and gain my attention, my attention, and and many things that try and compete for our affections in this world. But as we look at this passage, 
I think it's beneficial for us to be reminded of what it looks like to display or to recapture the heart and the mindset of the early church, because again, they were allowing their unity to foster generosity among them. They were using their testimony to, to, to point to the power of Christ's resurrection. Their words were intentionally encouraging as they built one another up. Their love was sacrificial, and it was followed up with deeds that confirmed that it was genuine. And it was all because this was the very thing that Christ had done for them first. So for us, in the context in which we live in, I think the beneficial thing for us to meditate on is, Lord Jesus, who are you? And what have you done already on my behalf? And as I seek to be someone who goes through my life in this world, bearing your name, marked as your own, what does it look like for me to represent you to my brothers and sisters in Christ? And then out of the overflow of that, what does it look like when I respond to others in a Christ-like fashion as well? As Christ has treated us with genuine sacrificial love, and made us recipients of all kinds of blessings that we don't deserve. We have the privilege to cultivate that kind of culture right here in and among ourselves and to allow that to be a powerful testimony that Christ also uses as He seeks to draw others unto Himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture today and to meditate on its content, and to think about the things that you reveal here, and to think about what the life was like, uh, what life was like in and among the early church, how they dealt with things, how they wrestled with things, how they treated one another. Lord, you were cultivating a culture there that, naturally speaking, would not have been cultivated. Lord, as these believers were making these intentional investments, they were doing so for your glory. And we're grateful, Lord, that we have the privilege to see these things displayed in their example. But likewise, Lord, we have the privilege to act on these things as we interact with one another. Lord, we're grateful for those who show us your love. We're grateful for those who take the time to encourage us. We're grateful for all the ways that you've you've chosen to bless us, Lord. And as you've laid down your life for us, we pray that we would lay down our lives for one another in reference to what you've done for us. Lord, help us to understand your heart. Help us to understand the blessings and the impact as we just meditate on the power of your resurrection and what that means for us. And Lord, we pray that we would rely on your strength and your power to go through life in such a way that you receive glory and others are built up and edified in the process. We thank you, Lord, for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.